0: Thank you, David. You were very kind. It shows what happens when you accept people sight unseen. <laughs> it's been a joy to have him around. I gave him a hard time. He didn't tell you all the bad things he could have told you about me. I gave him a hard time during those years of Hebrew, but I can tell you he learned it and learned it well and uh, continues to grow in the Lord, and I'm excited to see what God's going to continue to do with David in the future. And I'm glad you're here. You know, we're very happy that my wife and I could come here and share in this uh, conference to be here on uh, Friday and Saturday and again today. And we want to thank you folks for your hospitality, for the invitation to come and join you in this mission's emphasis. We also want to bring you greetings from our uh, current uh, church where I serve as an elder and from our pastor, Philip DeCourcy, at Placerita Baptist Church up in Santa Clarita. And uh, we've heard a lot about Calvary Bible Church and about the work of the Lord down here and about Pastor Hughes. We have a son and daughter-in-law who are in Boise, Idaho, in the church up there. And so they knew uh, your pastor and his wife before we did in reality. And we've enjoyed being up there in that church and ministering and and, uh, seeing our uh, kids grow in that church. He's in the military and soon will be moving on. And they're dreading moving on because they fall in love with that congregation up there. Uh, they may be coming here to visit you next Sunday. They're coming down to see us, to leave the boys with us while they, uh, Tim and Danica, go off to celebrate their 10th wedding anniversary a little bit early and take a cruise. And one of the things they said they wanted to do while they're in the L.A. area is to visit your church. And so you might see them next uh, Sunday. Uh, We just thank you for your ministry and the gospel here in Burbank and the way it's going out, the preaching and proclaiming of God's word. And uh, I want you to know that, Your sister congregations around the area are praying with you and for you as you pray and work with us as well. And we appreciate that. Thank you. Let's take our Bibles this morning, turn to the book of Acts. It's the New Testament, the next book after the four Gospels. And as we're looking here, we're going to talk about practical Pauline missions. While we were in Bangladesh, where we served for 15 years... I began a study that lasted two or three years of Paul's missionary methodology. And as I did that, I also was chairman of our field council at one point, and I presented a series of devotions uh, through a field council meeting. Every day we'd meet, I'd give a devotion, and each day I had a different location where Paul was and talked briefly about his methods in that particular location. We're only going to talk about one location this morning, Antioch of Pisidia, which is the first major city that Paul went to as a new rookie missionary. And we began to look at this and find out the way that he proceeded to preach the gospel there, the methods that he utilized, what his message was like, what the results were like. And then afterwards, we're also going to take a look at his general pattern that was exhibited throughout all of his different ministries. Even though he had different methodologies, he varied. He was flexible. He realized that with a different people group or a different city, he had to uh, do some things differently in order to reach them. So he wasn't frozen into one method and that method alone, but he did have a certain pattern that was based upon scriptures as the foundation that he would follow in all of those places, even though the methods might vary. So we're going to look at that a little bit this morning, starting in Acts chapter 13. Uh, We're going to begin at verse 14. If you want to look there, I will read a few verses. We're going to also look at Paul's first recorded sermon. He may have preached others before this. Remember that he taught at uh, Antioch of Syria for many years, and it was in the midst of his service there that uh, the Lord called him into missionary service, to leave Antioch of Syria and to go out in in the areas of the world around the Mediterranean to preach and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this is the first recorded message we have here in Scripture. Scripture. As we look at this message, we have much to learn. You know, when we listen to our American presidents, we kind of enshrine and almost canonize their inaugural addresses. We remember what Washington said in his inaugural address, what John Kennedy said in his, what George Bush said in his. We we look at those. we, We try to remember the things that were said. And we try to see if that president follows through with the agenda he set in his inaugural address. We're sometimes dismayed at what is left out. We're sometimes thrilled about what's included. But it's always memorable, and there's always some nugget that follows that president the rest of the history of his presidency. And as we look at Paul, we're going to see his inaugural address as far as the book of Acts is concerned in its record. And it does leave us with some things that are very, very memorable and things that we want to make certain that we do not miss beginning at verse 14 of Acts chapter 13. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. And Paul stood up, and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm he led them out from it. And for a period of about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. I like that phraseology, he put up with them, Uh, just like he puts up with us sometimes. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. And after these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And we know the lesson of that was watch out what you ask for. And after he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. From the offspring of this man, according to promise. There's a key word here, the word promise. God has brought Israel to, brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, to us the word of this salvation is sent out. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, They asked Pilate that he be executed, and when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Let's bow before the Lord the Word in prayer, shall we, as we begin? Heavenly Father, we come before you hearing these words in your word knowing that the Apostle Paul was preaching by your direction and that it's been recorded here by Luke so that we might have it as an example for us and as instruction for us in how we ought to live for you, how we ought to proclaim the gospel. And we ask your guidance this morning. As we look into the mirror of your word, help us not forget what we see, both in what we are like and what we need, and also... the challenges you have for us to obey you. Lord, help us to be not just hearers of your word this morning or even preachers of your word, but rather help us to be doers of your word so that we do not deceive ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. As we go through this passage of scripture, we have a number of things that help us out in how to perform biblical missions. I've entitled the message Practical Pauline Missions, and uh, I've found these things to be true in 15 years of service in Bangladesh, in watching and observing and studying other missionaries and seeing how they serve the Lord, and in studying the Scriptures in depth. I believe that what the Scriptures presents is eminently practical. We often think of the Scriptures teaching as being somewhat uh, too heavenly, uh, too unreal, too uh, above us. And yet we find that the Scripture speaks directly to us exactly where we are, the way we are, the kind of people we are, and it is very practical. I really don't like the division in our seminaries that we often have between practical and systematic theology, as though systematic theology isn't practical. All theology is practical or it isn't theology, because it should come from the Word, and the Word of God is all practical. It is that which will guide us and direct us, which instructs us in righteousness, corrects us and reproves us, and we get all of our teaching from it. It is practical. We are to obey it. The first thing we see in this passage, the first thing that strikes me, has to do with the character of the apostle Paul himself. We know from Romans chapter 10 verses 1 and following that Paul had an intense desire to reach his people for Jesus Christ. He had a very heavy burden upon his soul, upon his heart for his people Israel. So much so that he could stand before God and say that he was speaking the truth and not lying and that the Holy Spirit was bearing witness that he spoke the truth, that he could wish that he himself were accursed, lost forever, sent to hell, a loss totally of salvation or any hope of salvation if only his people Israel could be saved. That's how much he loved them. Would you be willing to give up your eternal salvation, your place in heaven, the forgiveness of your sins on behalf of a people that they would be saved? There are very few like that. Paul was like that. And we see that. This was his heart's desire. And it shows because when he arrived in Pisidia, in Pisidian Antioch, he went on the Sabbath day to the synagogue He went where the people were that he loved, the people for whom he had a great burden. But note very clearly, he was not in Israel where the people were primarily gathered. And we note soon in this chapter that before he is very far along in his first missionary journey, his missionary policy and practice changes radically And he says, we have gone to the Jews first, but from now on, we will go to the Gentiles. But remember, he already heard that on the road to Damascus. On the road to Damascus, where we have this man who considered himself a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a true Israelite. When God spoke to him out of heaven and asked him what he was doing, persecuting Jesus Christ by persecuting the followers of Christ. He was on his way to Damascus to take delivery on another group of Christians that had been arrested and were to be taken back to Jerusalem and were to be executed for their faith. Paul was involved in that. He was zealous for the purity of his people Israel and is willing to go to any length to make certain that they were pure and clean and rid of anything that even smelled of heresy. But on that Damascus Road that day, the Lord humbled Saul, brought him to himself, and he said to him, I am going to make you my spokesman to kings and to nations. How that must have struck Paul deep in the heart. He loved his people, and God never removed that love of his people, even in his salvation. Through his salvation, that love was maintained, and Paul maintained that love and that heavy burden the rest of his life. But God did not take him where Paul's desires were. We often say, go where you desire. Go where you have a burden. You must not go unless you have a burden. And yet Paul was taken to people that he had no burden for. He obeyed the sovereign Lord of the universe when he was told, I will send you to kings and nations. He became an apostle to the Gentiles, while Peter received the position of apostle to Israel and to the Jews. So the first lesson we learn here is even though God will not necessarily remove from our heart those burdens and desires we have, yet they are not the ultimate decider of where we go and to whom we minister. We are to listen to the sovereign voice of God and his word and go where he sends us. Even if it is to a people that we must pray, Lord, give me a love for this people. Secondly, we see that Paul gave a clear proclamation of the gospel according to the Old Testament prophecies. We look at his message here and we're reminded of what he said when he stood before King Agrippa in chapter 26, verses 22 and 23. He stood before King Agrippa, he stood before the governor Festus, and he said, I have proclaimed nothing other than that which Moses and the prophets said should come to pass. that The Messiah would suffer many things and he would die and he would be the first to rise from the dead and to give light to the Gentiles. Moses and the prophets. I often ask my students at the seminary, can you preach the gospel from the Old Testament alone? Paul didn't have a New Testament then. He ended up writing most of the New Testament by the direction of God. But he was able to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament. And you look at his message here. He often quotes from the Psalms. In verse 22, he's quoting from Psalm 89. In uh, verse uh, 33, he's quoting from Psalm 2. In verse 34, he's quoting from Isaiah 55, verse 3. In verse 35, he's quoting from Psalm 16. And at the end of his message, in verse 41, he's quoting from the little book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 5. He knew the Old Testament scriptures and he could lead a person to Jesus Christ using those Old Testament scriptures. You see, the gospel is not new, it's the same old message. It's just newly revealed in Christ upon earth in the flesh. In the Old Testament, they look forward to that without seeing it. And now in the New Testament, we look back on that having not seen it because it's already fulfilled, but it's over. It's done, but it's the same message. Salvation has always been by faith in the message concerning the Son of God. It's always been by faith concerning the one whom God would send his servant who would die for our sins, and who would rise again from the dead, that message has not changed from one age to the other. Merely the instructions of how the believer, once they are saved, are to live. Those instructions have changed somewhat. But as we look at this passage, we see that there's the prophetic promises, verse 23, verse 32. We see a focus on the resurrection, I can remember as a seminary student meeting a man of God who was a great evangelist and was considered to be one of the greatest evangelists of our day in America. And I remember talking with him because I was sent to the airport as a seminary student to be taxi driver for him, to pick him up, bring him to the seminary where he spoke, where he was receiving an honorary doctor's degree, and then take him back out to the airport when we're finished. And, you know, seminary students are pretty bold usually. We we tread on places where angels fear to tread. And so I just asked him, I said, Sir, would you tell me, what what is the gospel? And he looked at me and he said, Young man, you're in seminary and you have to ask that question? I said, well, sir, I'm I'm asking to find out if you know what the gospel is. (laughs) Whoa. He said, well, I'll tell you. And he proceeded to tell me. When he got through, I said, but sir, you left out the resurrection. Christ, Isn't that necessary to believe? And he said, no, it's not necessary to believe. I said, well, then, sir, I I have to respectfully disagree with you that the message of the gospel very clearly includes a necessity to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, I never heard from him again. He thanked me for the ride to the airport. But not, not long after that, someone got a tape of his where he responded to that and preached a whole message on how you didn't know, have to know the resurrection, know about it, or believe it in order to be saved. Well, my Bible still has it in there. You know what? The Apostle Paul emphasized it too. Look at his first message here. The, the thing he emphasizes the most in this message is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at it. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. That's the first occurrence. Verse 33, the second occurrence. He raised up Jesus as it is also written. Verse 34, the third occurrence, he raised him up from the dead. Verse 37, the fourth occurrence, but he whom God raised. Throughout the whole ministry of the Apostle Paul, we find out the message concerning the resurrection is what was the real dividing line between those who believed and those who did not. On Mars Hill, when he started preaching about the resurrection, they shut him up and said, that's enough we'll have enough of this foolishness and they stopped listening to him but there were some who listened who believed and who were saved peter wrote that we are born again by the resurrection of christ from the dead paul wrote in 1 corinthians chapter 15 verses 3 and 4 this is the gospel which i have given to you which i have handed over to you passed on to you and by which you are saved and it is this that jesus christ died for your sins And that he was buried. That's the proof that he died. You don't bury living people. At least you're not supposed to. And that he rose again from the dead the third day according to the scriptures. And what was the proof of that? And that he was seen over and over again. That's the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without his resurrection, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, we are of all men most miserable and our faith is vain, empty, fruitless, worthless. We are of all men most miserable if he is not raised from the dead. And our message, we might as well stop preaching, might as well stop sending out missionaries, might as well stop meeting in church. That's the one doctrine that needs to be destroyed if the church is to be destroyed, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's our foundation. He preached, he focused on the resurrection of Christ. Four times in this first message. He focused on forgiveness of sins. Look at verses 38 and 39. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. You see, there were some Jews in that day, as there are many people today, who believe, well, if I just keep the Ten Commandments, I will be saved. God's going to accept me into his heaven. Paul said, oh, no, you won't. You can't be freed by keeping the law. You can't be freed by keeping the Ten Commandments or even all 613 commandments of the law of Moses. It is not by the law that we are saved. The law condemns. By the law, we're told we're sinners because we can't keep it, because no man can keep all of the law all the time. And that is the evidence that we cannot save ourselves. And it is not by works. But we're saved through faith in Jesus Christ. We are freed From all things, we're freed from the power, the penalty of sin. And one day from the presence of sin, we have forgiveness of sins. That's the message we want to take. You know, I think of this, and I look here also and see that Paul did not just talk about what we receive in Christ. He didn't just talk about what Christ did. Before he finished his message, he uttered a warning. He said, now listen to me. I've given you the gospel, the good news in Jesus Christ. You know now where you can have forgiveness of sins. You know how you can be made free with a liberty you've never experienced. But if you reject it, if you go away and neglect this truth and refuse to apply it to yourself personally, I warn you, verse 40, take heed, therefore so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. And then he quotes from Habakkuk, Behold, you scoffers, and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. He said, Be careful that you don't reject this message. A young man in Bangladesh whom I learned to believe was the Apostle Paul of Bangladesh was a young man named Shapon Mondal. Chopin is one of the best evangelists I've ever been around, one of the best preachers, one of the best teachers, a a man of God who led his family in the Word, who led his churches in the Word. He planted uh, three or four churches in the Chittagong area. He worked alongside missionaries. He went out to work on his own. He was willing to go anywhere with the gospel. He has a heart's desire to reach his people for Jesus Christ. He has an ability, even though he came from a Hindu background, of sitting down in the midst of a throng of Muslims. And before long, they're listening to him raptly as he talks to them about Jesus Christ. He's led many Muslims, many Hindus, many Buddhists to Christ in the nation of Bangladesh. I can remember one of my greatest privileges when I first arrived there as a rookie missionary. was being asked by him if I would mentor him and disciple him. And help him. He was already doing far more than I would ever accomplish in Bangladesh on my own. And uh, to watch him and have that privilege was amazing. We sat down began a study of the book of Ephesians, and then we moved into first and second Timothy. And I, I just we had a bond in that work and ministry, and I constantly marveled. I learned from Shapo on how to really reach the people. That's why I would go out certain days of the week and I would wander the back alleys and streets of the old city of Chittagong, down where the cars couldn't go, down where the, even the rickshaws couldn't go, where you sometimes walked in mud up to your ankles and sometimes in the fish market in fish guts and uh, dirty water and uh, talked to people and sat in the tea houses and talked to the men and presented the gospel, gave them New Testaments and gospel tracts. I learned that from chapon I learned that by walking with him and walking where he went. I can remember one time visiting his little village outside of Chittagong and visiting his church. And he said, hey, Bill, today we're going to do something different. There's a family out here, out in the jungle, that hasn't come to Christ. And he said, I've been out there two times. And he says, we want to go again today. He says, will you come with me? And I said, certainly. He says, hop on. We hopped on his motorcycle and he took me down those jungle paths, off through the jungles, back into this little uh, kind of like a farm back in there and we sat down on their doorstep and these people came out and he preached the gospel to them. I'd never heard anything like it in my life. What a man. And then he said now, he says, just, just pray that the Lord leads you to do the right thing. And I said, what do you mean? He says, well, he says, they're going, he says, in Bangladesh, he says, the custom to always give your guests something before you leave. He says, this is a very poor family. So he said, just kind of close your eyes a little bit. And they took a glass that was dirty walked down to the edge of a very dirty, muddy pond, shook it around a little bit in it, shook it out a little bit, walked up, went and grabbed a goat, milked the goat, handed me the glass, said, drink, walked into a bin of grain in the dark room behind me, and we had already been in there, and I knew what was there. It was filled with rats, and they were all amongst the grain. They brought out a handful of grain, put it in my hands, brushed out some of the rat droppings, and said, eat. And, you know, I, I learned what Isabel Kuhn used to say. You know, it's, uh, you, you eat what the Lord gives you and rely upon His protection. I drank that milk and I ate that grain, never got sick. But I'll never forget the experience of being there with Chopin, an evangelist of evangelists, a man of God. listen. He was like the Apostle Paul. He had a deep heart's desire for his people. He had a, a clear proclamation of the gospel. And it was his power, it was his driving force that they would reach as many people in Bangladesh with the gospel as possible. And he centered everything upon the word. Notice in this whole passage, in Acts chapter 13, the word of God is referred to 20 times. Notice in verse 15 that it's being publicly read, and Paul is there out of respect for the public reading of God's word and ready to stand and preach it upon the invitation. His reliance upon it for the teaching in verses 22, 39, and 40. His belief in its promises that we've seen there in verses 23 and uh, 32. A recognition of its core message of salvation. Look at verse 26, the word of this salvation. The realization of its prophetic accuracy in verses 29 and 33 and 40. He used its statements to preach in verses 33 and through 35 and 40 and 46. He cited the word of God. He quoted the word of God. It's also there's a recognition here in verse 44 that the people gathered in order to hear the word of God. Notice the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled. For what purpose? To see who Paul was? to have a great musical uh, time of singing in the Lord, and that's great. Let me tell you, music is part of Scripture. Just read the book of Psalms. The music we had this morning, that's part of worship. But notice here, that wasn't the focus. The focus was to hear the Word of God. I don't know if they had music then in that time in that synagogue. They may not have. But they came to hear the Word of God. Notice that it's also confirmation of their missionary policy and practice in verse 47. They relied upon the statement in Isaiah 49, verse 6, that the Gentiles were to hear the message. And so they went to the Gentiles by God's direction. We notice that it's the object of faith. We're told in verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as been appointed to eternal life, believed. And then notice that in verse 49, we have the power of the ministry in its expansion and spread is due to the word of God. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. Twenty times here, the word of God is at the forefront. You see, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, by the word of Christ, we're told in Romans 10:17. But why are we gathered here together today? Because there are many who have not heard. And how shall they hear except one be sent? So we're sending missionaries abroad throughout all the world to every people on earth with this message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must send them. There's no other way to salvation except by the word of God. We are born again by the seed of the incorruptible word of God, Peter said. James said, we're born again by the word of God. Paul wrote, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But it just doesn't magically appear in those countries, in those languages. We must go, we must translate, we must preach, we must proclaim. We must send those who will go. How shall they hear except one be sent? And we are the ones who must send. And we are the ones who must go. Next we see a very fascinating thing in verse 50 of chapter 13. They ran into a problem. And this problem created difficulty for them. The Jews became aroused because of all the Gentiles that were being led to the Lord by Paul and Barnabas. And the leading people of the city started a persecution, we're told in verse 50, against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. They said, you can't preach here anymore. They were charged with preaching an illicit and illegal religion under the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, under Roman law. And they were expelled. They were told, you can't stay here. You cannot preach the word here. You cannot remain here. Your visa, in essence, has been uh, retracted and you're out. Now, do we see Saul or Paul there, Paul and Barnabas, trying to get back in in some covert fashion to try to have some secret mission? Are they trying to gain access back into this limited access city and region? Are they trying to do things Under the table and underground? No. They publicly shake off the dust of their feet against those and went out to Iconium, we're told in verse 51. They didn't try to get back in where God had closed the door through the rulers whom God had allowed to be raised up in that city. They submitted to the law of that city and moved on. They did not cause trouble. They had already caused enough trouble. But the trouble they caused there was under the direction of God. And now God has shut the door and they have no business trying to go back. You know, sometimes today I'm disturbed by our current trends in mission agencies to seek to have covert mission operations in what are so-called limited access nations. I want you to turn with me to First Thessalonians chapter 2, if you would, please. First Thessalonians chapter 2. Let me just share with you a little bit about this. Because I don't see Paul ever having a covert mission operation, being secretive. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he writes this to the church at Thessalonica. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. It wasn't worthless. It wasn't empty. It wasn't void of results. It was successful. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know... We had the boldness in our God. Boldness. That means to speak openly, to proclaim openly, publicly. I am here to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what it is. You must believe. Had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God, even amidst much opposition. That word for opposition is the same word for agony. It's the agony and struggle and battle and wrestling in order to proclaim the gospel. Even though we were opposed, we spoke boldly. We didn't go into hiding. Verse 3, for our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or even by way of deceit. And that word deceit has the idea there, it's, there's no decoy. There's no decoy. There's no secular business set up on the side as an umbrella and as a covert operation to hide the proclamation of the gospel. It's rather an open and undeceiving, no decoy type of operation. Now, you see, today, I think that in reality, when we follow the scriptural method, we find out it's practical and we'll see greater result. Think just for a moment. Which is the largest group of Christians in what nation, and what ethnic group on planet Earth? They're in China. The church in China is larger than the church of the United States. But it was not that way when the missionaries were kicked out. Even though the missionaries were kicked out and left, the church grew to become the largest church on planet Earth. God does not need the missionary to stay, to overstay. He needs the missionaries to go and to do the work, and when it's time to leave, to leave. Because, you see, the Holy Spirit can continue that work. If you look back there at Acts chapter 13, you see there in that chapter... At verse 52, the last verse of the chapter, the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit, even after the missionaries were kicked out and they had left. The Holy Spirit was still there ministering. Sometimes I think we've got the idea that we've got to play the Holy Spirit, that uh, the Holy Spirit can't do the work without us, and therefore we're going to do everything we can, even if it's illegal, even if it's deceptive, in order that we get in there because God finds us indispensable. It's the Holy Spirit that does the evangelizing work to begin with. We're merely tools. We're merely instruments. We're merely servants. And we've done what God has sent us to do. The Holy Spirit will continue that work in a way that we never dreamed possible. You see, secret missions of this nature, number one, in Muslim lands, and I'll speak from there, is 15 years of experience in living in a Muslim country that has the second highest, or did have the second highest concentration of Muslims on planet Earth. I think today it's third highest, behind Indonesia and Nigeria. 130 million people in Bangladesh, 87% of them are Muslim. You figure the numbers out. We lived among them for 15 years. We ministered among them for 15 years. To go secretly, and I saw secret missions being performed in Bangladesh by mission agencies and missionaries, and I met them and I talked with them, and I could never understand it. Because there were those of us who were there openly and boldly proclaiming the gospel. At one point in the history of Bangladesh, you know what the government did? They said, Now all of you mission agencies are just here doing social work? Out. We can do that ourselves. And they started booting mission agencies out that had, for the sake of convenience and perhaps their own fear, had stopped preaching the gospel, at least openly, and had centered everything upon social action in the country. They found themselves shown the door. Those of us who are missions that were still preaching the gospel were allowed to stay because we were doing it openly. To do it secretly confirms the suspicions of Muslims that we're up to no good. It's hard enough to convince them after 15 years that we're not members of the CIA. We had a family that we had worked with all the time we'd been there, 15 years. And the day before we left, one of the young men in the family said to me, he says, now are you going to tell us who you worked for in the CIA? And I said, I am just shocked. And I started to cry. I was really upset. I said, have I been here with you so long? And have we been in your home so many times in and and ours that you still think that? It takes years to dispel those doubts and suspicions. And to go in secretly merely confirms those suspicions and continues to make it difficult. Number two, it ignores the respect that Muslims have for those who live according to their convictions. That same family invited us over to their house for Eid Khorbani celebration the first year we were in Chittagong, Bangladesh. When the young men came from their father to issue the invitation, I turned it down. I said, I'm sorry. I says, please take word back to your father that I, I have to decline the invitation. I'll be glad to come over any time else, but I'm just and I was open with them. I just said, you know, I'm just not certain. I don't understand what E. Corbani is about. I'm new here in the country. I know that other missionaries go, but I have a responsibility, accountability before God to not do anything before Him that I have a Failed conscience over. And so I must be certain of this first before I come. So please forgive me, but I must reject the invitation. You know, we'd already been in that home four times, and every time I tried to bring up the gospel with that father in that home, he would just turn me off and change the subject. But three months later, they invited us back said, you didn't come at Eid, so we're inviting you back. And I walked in, and instead of having conversation about the weather and the politics and everything else, as soon as we got sat down, the father said to me, you can tell me about Jesus today. And my response to Mr. Rachman was to say, sir, I'll be glad to, but may I please ask a question? Why is it that you're asking me to do it now and you have not allowed me to even talk about Jesus in your home in all these times we've been here before, he said. Now I know you're a man of conviction, and I will listen to you. He said, when you turned down our invitation the way you did and you said what you did, he said I realize that you have conviction, that you live your Christianity, you believe it, and you want to. You have a desire to be submitted to God, and he says I will listen to you. They respect. Boldness, they respect convictions. They do not respect hiding it out of convenience. Third, it produces added persecution to national believers. Before we left Bangladesh in 1996, I had been talking with a number of missionaries who had been involved in an agency that had covert missions going on in Bangladesh among Muslim communities, especially in the villages. When we got back to Bangladesh in in the summer of 1997 to revisit I heard a story that just chilled me and I checked it out with a man who I knew would know if it was true and he confirmed my fears. These secretive missionaries had brought persecution upon the national believers that you and I would find appalling. You see, because they were so secretive then the radical Muslims of their area began to try to find out, what's going on here? What's this business that seems to be connected with them? And, and where's the church getting its money? And, and where's, what's this person doing here? And how are these things happening? And, and how, how do they meet and why do they meet? And they sent people in undercover to try to find out these things, but they couldn't find out everything because they were so secretive. So one night, they kidnapped one of the men of the congregation, one of the Bangladeshi men. They took him to a location out in the jungle, into a hut, and they began interrogating him and beating him. And he wouldn't tell them. So they began cutting off his fingers knuckle by knuckle, deep into the night. When he still wouldn't tell them, the hands came off at the wrist. They eventually stopped when they got to his elbows decided they weren't going to get anything out of him, threw him outside in the dust of the night and allowed him to bleed to death. If we're going to go in covertly into these nations, we can expect an increase of persecution upon the national believers because of our secrecy. That is not right. Fourth, It gives in prematurely to gaining access to a so-called closed nation. There are many closed nations where people are serving God and where the gospel is being proclaimed openly and who entered the country with visas that declared they are missionaries. You know what happened to these missionaries in Bangladesh? They thought they were so smart. They thought that the government didn't know why they were there and they didn't realize that they were missionaries under cover of a business. But what they didn't realize is that the government had marked their passports. And I saw one of those passports. And I told the man, I said, you're not fooling anyone. Look at your passport. Right here, you see that letter after your passport visa number? That is a signal to the government that you are a missionary. Everyone who sees this passport, everyone who sees this visa knows you're a missionary. So why are you continuing the charade? But sometimes we think we're so much smarter than those in the third world and that we can pull the wool over their eyes. We won't. And I admire those missionaries who are serving in Muslim lands openly. And they have, like Bob Canovar in Morocco, has has the uh, support of the local police. His people are not being persecuted. And they are listening to the gospel, even the local police house, because he has stood up and stood firm and openly and boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and not denying that he's a missionary in their midst. And lastly, it fails to be opportunistic. It fails to find those other ways to establish relationships and preach the gospel in so-called closed nations. It's called borders. We know about borders here in California, Southern California, don't we? Is our border closed down here? It's as porous as Swiss cheese, right? So's the border into Burma with Bangladesh. So's the border into Burma with Thailand. If the government of Burma won't let you in to preach the gospel among the Burmese, all you have to do is go to live in Thailand or go to live in Bangladesh and live near the border, and you'll have thousands of Burmese on your doorstep to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our mission handed out thousands of Burmese language New Testaments to Burmese. In southern Bangladesh. And the same with many Muslim countries where the doors are supposedly closed. The same with China. There are borders where you can go and be near and preach the word and send the people back into the nation to proclaim the word of God without having to sneak in under false pretenses. Borders are porous. There's many ways to get in, just like we're finding out in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Well, let's move back. Let's go back to Acts chapter 13. We're reaching the end of our message here this morning. And we've seen some of the patterns. We've learned some lessons. We've not exhausted this. We could go on and on in this. And this is only one city, one place where he's gone, one mission project. Let's very quickly, and I'll just run through you the nine, for you the nine steps that Paul had in his pattern for planting churches. And that's in chapter 14 of Acts, beginning at verse 21. And there's two of the steps right there in verse 21. The first step in Paul's pattern is first to evangelize. Verse 21, he preached the gospel. The second step is educate. You take those new believers and you disciple them. You follow up. He made many disciples. That's education, second step. The third step is in verse 22, strengthening the souls, of the disciples. That's edifying, establishing them in the faith. The fourth step is encouraging them to continue in the faith. Encouragement, evangelize, educate, edify and establish, encourage. And then the fifth step, after you've done that, you see, you have a core of believers who have not only been led to the Lord, not only been discipled, but they've been strengthened and they've been encouraged and you've had an opportunity to watch them work and serve Christ. And then you appoint elders. The election of elders, verse 23. They had appointed elders for them in every church. And then notice the sixth step. The sixth step is also in verse 23. Having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Do you know what that word commend means? It means hand over. Hand over. They gave them over to the Lord. And when you hand over something, you let go. You let go. Try that with your teenagers. You're teaching how to drive. I'm going to hand over the car to you now. And as they're trying to drive away, you're still leaning in the window, hanging on to the steering wheel. Sometimes you'd like to do that. I know. We've got to let go entrust to God, evacuate, embark, get out of there. Sophie Janista, veteran missionary in the Philippines, had gone with her husband to the Philippines a long time back, in fact, during World War II, and they had served there. And at one point, they left the ministry in the Philippines because they felt that the Philippine believers weren't working on their own. So they left and said, goodbye, we're taking off to Australia and start a church down there. They spent five years in Australia, and then they came back. She said, when we came back, we came back as partners in the work rather than those upon whom they leaned and depended. These were now independent believers, independent churches. You know, it was that attitude that an ABWE planted 1,500 churches in the Philippines. Because it wasn't done all by missionaries. It was done by Philippine pastors and people who learned to stand on their own because the missionaries let go, got out, and then later they returned as partners in the work, as equals in the work, to share in the ministry rather than to be depended upon in the ministry. Then the seventh step is found in verse 27. They went back home to the home church, the sending church at Antioch of Syria, and they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. There's your evaluation of your mission service and your explanation to the home church. Step number eight is in verse 28. And they spent a long time with the disciples. That's enrichment, missionary enrichment, having time to relax Having time to be ministered to in the word in your home church, to be at home, to be with your families, to get your batteries recharged and ready to go out again. Yes, furloughs are part of the program of Paul's ministry. And then the last step is found over in chapter 15, verse 36, the ninth and last step. We had evangelize, educate, edify and establish, encourage, elect elders, entrust to God or evacuate, embark, Seventh was evaluate and explain. Eighth was enrichment, spiritual enrichment, recharging your batteries. And the last is examine the work by a return firsthand visit. We've been back to Bangladesh. This summer will be my third time back since we left in 96. Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Don't break all the ties. Maintain contact Keep a ministry going, be supportive, be active, be involved in that ministry, go back to it. That's Paul's pattern for planting churches, New Testament fashion. There's much more we could talk about. There's one thing more I must tell you before I close. And that is you'll notice that in all of this, there was one element of missions I have not referred to, but it is evident from the very start of their being sent out from Antioch of Syria in Acts chapter 13 verses 1 through 4 and all the way through the entire ministry of the Apostle Paul. He never went out alone. He was not Sir Galahad riding on his white charger. He was not the gospel gunslinger going out against all the people that would attack the gospel and fighting them and being victorious as a single individual, a rugged pioneer missionary, individualistic, they always went out in teams. There was always a team. One of the things I think the most tragic thing in American Christianity and in missions is that there are no good team biographies written to help train our young people in our Bible colleges and churches. We just have individual, personal biographies of great saints, great missionaries of the faith, great stalwarts that we want to imitate. But listen, that's not the way God works all the time through those. The pattern in the New Testament is teams, teamwork, submitting ourselves to others around us, working together as a team, proclaiming the gospel as a team, just as you do here in this church. You're a team. You're not a bunch of loners that's the way missions ought to be. That's the way missionaries ought to be. Teamworkers, team players, going as a team, submitting their will to the team, learning to serve as a team. That's the way Paul did it everywhere he went. And he always made certain he had a good team around him. I'd exhort you to think about that as well. Well, where where are we at now as we close this message this morning? We've had a missionary conference. And you at Calvary Bible Church are praying about how God would use you in giving to missions ahead. You're talking about perhaps praying about how God would use you personally to reach out to people groups in the L.A. area, perhaps even to go on short-term missions across the border into Mexico or into Canada or overseas, perhaps talking about those among you that might send out as full-time missionaries to go preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our question ought to be, are we doing it the biblical way? Are we doing it the way that Paul laid out? Do we want to do, do we want to have the results that Paul had? You know, if it hadn't been for Paul following these kind of patterns and these kind of principles and methods, we might not have heard the gospel here in America yet. But because he was obedient and because he saturated himself the word and realized that truth, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And it was the pattern his methods by what was taught in the word of God as well as his message and to send messengers who were committed to the word of God first and foremost at all times and all ways. They turned the world upside down for Christ. As I closed the first message this morning, I'm going to close it today in this second service. You know, George Bush, our president, has caught on that phrase that that one fellow, that believer on that airliner over Pennsylvania said, The last words the operator heard, let's roll. We've heard President Bush use that often, even at the Olympic openings, he used that. You know, we ought to have that attitude too. Why stand still? Why do nothing? Let's roll. Let's get busy. Let's do something for Christ. Let's be doers of the word and not hearers only. Let's accomplish missions. Let's do missions. Let's be involved. if we do that... We can turn the world upside down again. That's Bound Prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power. That's the power to salvation to everyone who believes. Father, make us servants of your word. Fill our hearts and our minds and our mouths with your word. Send us forth to proclaim it to serve under our sovereign Lord and King of the universe, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Give us people who will go, young and old alike. Help us not just to sit back and say, oh, someone else can do that. Help us not to sit back and say, ah, uh, missionaries have enough money. Let's put more at work here. Help us rather to dedicate ourselves and pour pour ourselves out all the more, all the more abundantly, both at home and abroad, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.